What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, why we'll never see a movie like Who Framed Roger Rabbit ever again. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And we're looking at the absolute classic Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988 and why a movie like this could never happen again. And it was a miracle that it even happened in the first place. So before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, here we go. So I'm hoping you've seen this movie in case you haven't pause this and go check it out it's on disney plus a really good quality of it i have it on blu-ray as well too uh, but of course who Framed roger rabbit came out in 1980 as mentioned directed by the great robert zemeckis many people don't know this but the movie is actually based on a book from 1981 called who censored roger rabbit it was a mystery novel written by gary k wolf and I had no idea this thing ever existed. The main elements are there, including Eddie Valiant as the detective and Roger Rabbit as the main character. The big difference in this book is that Roger ends up being murdered. But Roger has created a doppelganger that was in on this and another murder. And there's a genie from a magic lamp that intervenes. Quite a bit, bit different from the movie. Anyway, the book would still be the basis for the movie as all the main characters are in it. The book, however, is set in the modern day and Who Framed Roger Rabbit would partly be looking at the glory of old Hollywood and sort of that golden age of movies. So here, uh, just a refresher on the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So the basic idea follows the story of the characters of Toontown who live amongst real-life humans. Roger Rabbit is a top star, but has been having lackluster reviews as of late, which is making R.K. Maroon, head of Maroon Cartoons, pretty nervous. Eddie Valiant is brought in to check up on Roger's extremely attractive wife, Jessica Rabbit, as she's thought to be romantically involved with Marvin Acme, who owns the Acme Corporation and Toontown itself. Marvin is found dead, and it looks like Roger did it. We meet Judge Doom and his team of weasels who are charged with trying to track down Roger and bring him to justice. Judge Doom is inherently sinister and has created something called Dip, which can kill a cartoon. It's thought that Roger may be innocent and that Marvin's will, which had been lost, was going to give the Toons the right to owning Toontown. We find Roger hiding out in Eddie's office, swearing that he's innocent. We then find out that Mar Maroon Cartoons is being sold to Cloverleaf that runs the transportation system in town and has uh, bought the trolley network before Marvin was murdered. RK Maroon had blackmailed Marvin to sell his company so he could sell the studio. Maroon is killed and isn't able to share the details of the will. We find out that Doom killed Marvin and Maroon, and in the Acme factory, 
Doom shares his plan to destroy Toontown, melting it with dip and build a freeway, which is actually mirroring what would happen in the real city of Los Angeles. Eddie battles Doom, who we found out is actually a cartoon, and he's the one that killed Eddie's brother. Doom ends up being killed and everyone lives happily ever after. So let's look into the creation of this movie. So Disney had been on board with this as a film since the book came out and had purchased the movie rights in 1981. Amblin Entertainment and Steven Spielberg were brought in to produce the movie alongside Zemeckis, who would direct it. Richard Williams would be in charge of all the animations, who's a fellow Canadian. The making of this movie is a massive undertaking from a technical standpoint as well as a legal one. So Disney had been testing footage as early as 1981, but nothing was coming together until Michael Eisner overhauled things in 1985. To do it right, Eisner said, it was going to cost $50 million, which today would be around $120 million. So, you know, an average big blockbuster-type movie. Again, but, you know, when you look at the bigger, bigger movies, they can be double that price. So it depends on on the style and, and the the technicalities needed for it. So it might seem like nothing based on how much films cost to make today. But back then, things were a bit different. In 1985, you only had, you know, the the Star Wars franchise. Back to the Future 1 had just come out. Indiana Jones was underway. And it, we just didn't have the massive entities and um, sort of titles that we have today. Today's studios know they have to invest more money than ever to at least break even and make a profit. Unless you're a Marvel movie, there's no guarantee that a film will be a hit. Disney, of course, now owns everything, so they can put a half billion dollars into a movie and afford to take the hit if it's not successful. Back then, it was really unwise to invest too much, but the movie just physically required that much money to technically make it happen. Eventually, they got the budget down to $30 million, but that still made it the most expensive animated film of all time. So let's look at some of the cast and people involved in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, both human and cartoon. So we have Bob Hoskins, who plays Eddie Valiant. Christopher Lloyd played Judge Doom. I can't think of any other notable roles he's ever had. Stubby K was Marvin Acme. Joanna Cassidy was Dolores. She was also the replicant Zora in Blade Runner. Alan Tilvern was R.K. Maroon. Kathleen Turner voiced Jessica Rabbit. Some reason was uncredited in the movie. I'm never sure what that was about. Lou Hirsch voiced Baby Herman. He was also Fred in Superman 3. Charles Fleischer voiced Roger Rabbit, Benny the Cab, Greasy, and the character Psycho. So Fleischer appeared on shows like Hill Street Blues. He was in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And he was Terry in Back to the Future 2. That was the thumb 100 bucks guy to save the clock tower. Voice-wise, the great Mel Blanc voiced uh, Bugs Bunny, Daffy, Porky Pig, Tweety, Sylvester. This was actually his last role before he passed away. Joe Alasky voiced Foghorn, Leghorn, and Yosemite Sam. Wayne Allwine was Mickey Mouse. Tony and Simo voiced Donald Duck, but they actually used old recordings of original voice of Donald Duck, Clarence Nash as well. Tony Pope voiced Goofy. May Questel was back as her iconic Betty Boop. May Questel, you probably know as Aunt Bethany uh, from Christmas Vacation. A very young Nancy Cartwright, aka the voice of Bart Simpson, was the voice of the Toon Shoe. 
and uh, Cherry Davis was Woody Woodpecker. As notable as all these actors and performers are, it's more interesting to see who didn't end up with the roles in the film. Harrison Ford was the original choice to play Eddie, but he was charging too much for it. They then considered Bill Murray, but Murray wasn't always quick to take up offers for roles and ended up missing out. But I can honestly see both of these guys perfectly working well as Eddie Valiant. Most surprisingly, maybe fact of the podcast, Eddie Murphy actually turned down the role. I I can't imagine what the movie would have been like with him playing Valiant, but he obviously would have made it amazing. Also being considered for Eddie Valiant, basically all the best actors you can think of at the time, including Sylvester Stallone, Chevy Chase, Robert Redford, Robin Williams, Jack Nicholson, Ed Harris, Charles Grodin, everyone. Tim Curry was up for the role of Judge Doom, which also would have been perfect. Zemeckis was obviously comfortable with Christopher Lloyd after Back to the Future. That's Oh, that's where I remember seeing him. Okay. Apparently, the producers turned down Tim Curry as he was considered too terrifying for the role of Doom. First, that doesn't make any sense. And second, that seemed like the entire point of the character. They also considered Christopher Lee, who also would have been perfect. Uh, Also, John Cleese, Roddy McDowell, and I'm not making this up, Sting. Christopher Lloyd really was perfect as he does already in real life have this zany cartoon-like sensibility to him. Also, if you watch the movie again, notice that Christopher Lloyd and as the character of Judge Doom never blinks in any scene ever. This was his way of perfectly encompassing who the character was and that he was part cartoon and part madman. Not Don Draper, but a madman. Um, so yeah, if you go back, every scene is made sh- like they make sure to cut or edit it to not show him ever blink, like a cartoon rarely ever ever blinks. So let's look at the actual characters in whom framed Roger Rabbit, and it's almost impossible to see and identify everyone in it. Same thing with if you've seen Ready Player One, another Steven Spielberg movie. There, that's another sort of crossover movie, but one that uses you know more of a select amount of intellectual properties and copyrighted characters, but not at the scale of this. But there are so many in Ready Player One that the animators put in that they said even Steven Spielberg didn't know how many or who was actually in some of like the background scenes in it. So basically there's a ton. And we covered some of the main ones from the, the cast, like the who voice those characters, like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and everything. But here are some of the other big characters, specifically from Disney and Warner Brothers, and some from smaller studios. So from Disney, of course, Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Donald and Daisy Duck, Goofy, uh, Pluto, Pete, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, Horace, Horse Collar, Clarabelle, Cow, characters from the Merry Dwarfs, Flowers and Trees, the Father's Noah art cartoon. Some of these are like deep cuts. Clara Cluck. Gus Goose, Big Bad Wolf, Little Red Riding Hood, Fiddler Pig, Pfeiffer Pig, all the characters from Snow White, various characters from Fantasia, all the characters from Dumbo, Bambi, Thumper, The Great Prince, Faleen, Flower, Chicken Little, Piglet, The Penguin Waiters from Mary Poppins, Peter Pan, Tinkerbell, John Darling, uh, Flaps the Vulture and Cough and The Jungle Book, with Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny, Daffy, Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, Yosemite Sam, Tweety Bird and Sylvester, Foghorn Leghorn, Roadrunner and Wiley a Coyote, Marvin the Martian, Sam Sheepdog, Speedy Gonzalez. These are the, just like the most obvious ones. And from other studios, you have, as mentioned, like Betty Boop, Droopy Spike, Coco the Clown, Woody Woodpecker, Gandy Goose, Louie Lion, Felix the Cat, 
goes way deeper than that. But, but let's look at the actual success of the movie. And, you know, I don't have to tell you that what a big hit Who Framed Roger Rabbit was, but I still will. It came out on June 22nd, 1988, and was immediately a massive hit, both commercially and critically. It won three Academy Awards and would make $156 million domestically and $329 million overall. Converted for today, that's around $340 million domestically and $713 million worldwide respectfully so pretty good numbers even by today's standards uh you know not top not touching on like endgame money uh but it's also worth pointing out that the movies at this time were shown in fewer theaters who framed roger rabbit op- appeared on just 1045 screens compared to the three to four thousand you might have with a marvel movie the movie was an animation spectacle, and it still did old-school animation on hand-drawn cells. It was also seen as creating a massive interest in traditional animation and helped put in movement the new era for Disney animation that would bring the modern classics such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And this is the era which many now consider the real golden age of animation. So if it wasn't for the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, none of those movies would have ever happened. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Who Framed Roger Rabbit would end up being the second highest grossing movie in 1988, finishing second behind Rain Man. And at that point, it was the 20th highest grossing movie of all time. So now just looking about the whole legal issue of how did they get all these characters into one movie if again it goes back to steven spielberg if it wasn't for him the movie never would have happened the man is such a hollywood powerhouse influencer um, and convincing kind of all three of these combined that he was able to somehow influence and convince all the other studios to lend their characters to the movie this just would not happen today as each property or character has the potential to be its own entity and money maker you don't want to risk it on some um, someone else making money off it and i think there's no better example of this than with spider-man and all the issues that's gone on with that character sony has owned the rights to spider-man and only lent him to marvel which is now disney With the massive success of the Avengers movies and the standalone Spider-Man ones, there is just too much value in the character to let someone else profit off it. Sony had taken back the usage of Spider-Man for their own projects and weren't allowing him to appear in future Marvel movies. And that's, you know, switched and gone through different changes and now that's okay. I mean... The problem was there was a good chance they could destroy all the work that had been done by Marvel, Disney, and Tom Holland, but they're willing to take that risk because of how valuable every character is. Again, if you want to look back to the history of of Marvel itself and Marvel Studios and the growth of the comic books, and there was a time when that company was almost bankrupt, and they had to basically sell off all their characters to make money to keep things going. Um, then able you were able to you know buy them back over time. It's a, a pretty crazy story. Uh, the sort of the miracles that had to happen to get Marvel to where it is today. In the case of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 
These concerns, though, were not at the forefront as far as the intellectual properties and individual licensing of all the characters. There was no such thing as billion-dollar movies, and the loaning of characters seemed to have more of a neighborly quality to them, you know, like borrowing a cup of sugar from another studio. Spielberg was able to convince the following to lend their characters. So Warner Brothers, that's all the Looney Tunes characters. Fleischer Studios, that's Coco the Clown, Betty Boop, Popeye, Superman. King Features Syndicate, that's they also had the rights to the Fleischer characters. Turner Studios had... Uh, characters like Droopy, Spike, Meathead the Dog, Benny Burrow. Universal and Walter Lance Productions owned Woody Woodpecker, Papa Panda, Willy Walrus, Chili Willy, Dinky Doodle, uh, all the Felix the Cat creations, and Paramount Pictures just to get the Joker in this thing. These studios must have thought this was good exposure and that they didn't have to do any work. There may have been more motivation for Spielberg Spielberg to get all these rights as he was able to get a large part of the box office profit, so it was in his interest to recruit them. He also made sure his contract gave him a huge amount of creative control so he could use these characters that could help make the movie an even bigger success. But there were actually characters he didn't get. And I, I always just assumed like any available character was given to this movie. But Spielberg and Disney didn't get the rights to everything. And there were plenty of characters they couldn't lock down. Here's a list that were either unavailable or were written into the movie and then cut from the final version for various reasons. So with Disney, you didn't see Chip and Dale, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, the Pied Piper, Vulture from Snow White they wanted, Ichabod Crane, and more characters from Fantasia. Warner Brothers didn't allow for Pepe Le Pew, Petunia Pig, the Tasmanian Devil, Claude Cat, Macintosh. Some of these I'd never even heard of. Hoobie and Birdie, Oliver Owl, um, Barnyard Dog. Turner Entertainment wouldn't allow Tom and Jerry, uh, Junior Tyke, Jerky Turkey, the Hick Chick uh, Rooster, King Feature Syndicate wouldn't allow Popeye, Bluto, or Olive Oil. That, that, that's the good example of them knowing those characters worked on their own and could make their own money their own way without having to lend them to a whole other giant studio. Uh, some other notable characters from various studios unavailable or that missed a cut included Casper the Friendly Ghost, Little Lulu, Yaki Doodle, Dick Tracy, Andy Panda, Mighty Mouse, Heckle and Jekyll. Some pretty interesting um, characters. You just assume every cartoon you've ever watched in your life is in this movie. Most of them are, but there's still a big chunk that um, weren't able to become available. And that's what, you know, sort of the whole point of this episode is the more you look back on this movie, the more you realize what an astounding accomplishment it truly is to convince all these studios to loan out their characters for the betterment of one company is mind-blowing by today's standards especially when you consider it's disney who just owns everything there's just it's not that there wasn't um that much at stake in the 80s just today there's too much at stake in entertainment now compared to the 80s and in the 80s movies reign supreme uh today you just don't want to risk it because there's so many avenues for entertainment and so many platforms for it Back then, there were only a few TV channels, no internet, no streaming services. Uh, It was basically these three channels and going to the movies. That's what you had for entertainment. Today, just convincing people to go to the movies we've seen is such a challenge. And there's more research, testing, and marketing to make sure a movie will reclaim the investment made into it. And we're now getting into the era where movies 
are going to start being released at home on streaming services compared to just in the theaters, or they will be released at the same time, or the movies will just be in theaters for two weeks before they're released on Netflix or Disney+. Plus. There, There's just um, too much of a demand and, and sort of a shift in the way we consume entertainment. And if you also think to the fact most people's home entertainment setups um, are vastly better than what they even were like five years ago. Like everyone has a giant, at least 60 inch TV and some form of good surround sound system or um, at least, you know, good speaker bars and subwoofers, or they have their own projectors and mini studios. So the home experience is, is like a mini movie theater compared to the eighties where you had, you know, a 19 inch TV with horrible sound and horrible picture. Um, you couldn't wait to go out and see the big screen. Now the big screen is at home and it's changing the way that um, movies are released and marketed and promoted and consumed. Another reason why Who Framed Roger Rabbit would only work in the 80s and never work today is uh, just sort of how movies have evolved and into the focus on spinoffs and sequels and prequels and reimaginings. And those didn't exist in the 80s to the extent they do now. And I guess the other studios didn't see any downside to lending out their intellectual properties. It was all about just original movies and original creations. And now it's just taking what were already successful properties and sort of branching off those because they can um, use the name and the history and the nostalgia to create the interest again. It's so hard to put out an actual original movie these days. With the pressure on studios to turn a profit um, they just would never even risk that uh, to lend out their their characters or without selling them off at exorbitant fees, again, which is happening with Spider-Man. The, the pressure on them um, just to, to put out something that, like even to break even is considered a success sometimes because of how hard it is to get an audience's attention. And again, the huge issue with Spider-Man and Disney is fans Everyone hated the idea of Spider-Man being taken out of the MCU. If you are Sony or an investor with them, why in the hell would you let Disney and Marvel take all these profits on your property? Sony is getting a slice of what these movies make, but they're not getting the whole pie, and they just don't want to risk that. So could a movie like this ever be made again? I'd say probably not. There are just too many financial and legal issues to juggle even though the, it actually, someone wanted to try this on the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick. This is back a few years ago. J.J. Abrams was on and he mentioned just sort of casually to the absolute like bewilderment of all the other guests on the show about meeting with Spielberg to discuss the possibility of a sequel to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I'd say, you know, depending on your perspective, J.J. Abrams is kind of like a bit of the Steven Spielberg of this era. So if he couldn't make it happen, um, you know, there's no hope. Like he just had too many doors slammed in his face and, and it's, it's borderline impossible. Like I said, the closest we've got with something like this is ready player one, but that wasn't as much about the crossover of specific characters as more the quick inclusion of a few. And again, like you're not seeing, um, you know, there's there's quick shots of like Batman in the distance, but you're not having prolific big time characters on screen. And a lot of them are, you know, more lesser known, say, anime characters or video game characters. So it, it was sort of then just obviously not to the extent of all these massive studios allowing their characters to be used. 
So I'll start winding it down here. I mean, either way, Who Framed Roger Rabbit remains an absolute spectacle just from a creative standpoint and then watching this with all this in mind that it was a miracle to put this whole thing together. And it's just, it's an amazing movie. It's a beloved movie of the 80s. It holds up so well. This is a movie, you know, it could be released in the 50s, um, today, 20 years from now. It's always going to hold up because it just, it captures sort of that classic storytelling and using all these characters. And it's a murder mystery whodunit. It, 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 it's always worked. And then like the animation even holds up as much as we're used to CGI-based animation. This hand-drawn um cell drawn animation has its own sort of charm to it but because of the quality of the movie and now when you're watching it on like disney plus or blu-ray it looks like it was made today it's that good so you know uh, amazing look back at something we'll probably never see again and an interesting look at the sort of legalities that go behind the scenes of, of movies in hollywood so that's it for me. Thanks for checking the show out. Hopefully you enjoyed it, learned a little something, and at least encourage you to go watch Who Frame Roger Rabbit again. But thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I know there's a million podcasts out there, so the fact you listen to this one means a lot. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you find podcasts. I should be there. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.